Both of our children have spent their early school years at the preschool here at Peachtree. Our daughter graduated from pre-K in the craziness that was May of 2020, and our son began his time in the toddler room this past fall. I've loved getting to see our kids throughout the day where I occasionally will run downstairs, poke my head in, and even get those occasional hugs before they go back to playing and learning. And while seeing them at school has always been special, it was the conversations in the car on the way to and from school with our daughter Claire that have always been the most important. It's those same conversations I'm looking forward to having with our son Wit as he becomes ever more communicative. Now the stories that Claire would tell were ones that I always enjoyed, and I have notes that are written in the margins of my mind on what we have taken to call in our family the Flopsy stories. This is Flopsy. Flopsy is Claire's stuffed bunny, and she began her life as a bright pink that we could see across the room easily. But over the years, her coat has changed into a dull gray from, that only comes from being a well-loved stuffed animal, and one who might have avoided having her bath in the washer as often as she should have. But on the drive to and from school, Claire would often tell me stories about what Flopsy had done during the day. And they were never stories of what we knew that Claire was doing at school, but rather they were the parables of her mind that helped her to understand and relate to what was happening in life. At a time when Claire was trying to understand some of the dynamics of friendships that are changing within her classroom, Flopsy went through a time of friendship issues between her and her friends Trixie, the ladybug, Wings, the butterfly, Zinger, the bumblebee, Brother Mole, and Sister Mole. When our sweet daughter learned a bit more about the realities of death and dying, Claire told us about Flopsy's understanding of heaven. These were the stories that helped her to understand and to cope with everything that was going on in her life. In a similar way, Jesus told parables to his disciples. I've often pictured the discussions that he and the twelve would have on their journey through Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, occurring in similar ways to Claire telling us the Flopsy stories. One of the twelve would ask our Lord a question. And rather than simply giving an answer, Jesus would instead tell them a story that would make them think, yet that would also be the answer to the question. Last week, we began a new series of messages that are looking at some of the parables of Jesus, specifically those parables that have a twist to them or a surprise that occurs within them. And I, I explained to our daughter as we were talking about this sermon, as well as the messages of this summer, that the parables are Jesus' version of the Flopsy stories that he would tell to his disciples. Now, as Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Capernaum, he began to tell them this story. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees and before him and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. As we look at the parables, it can be important for us to note that Jesus tells really two different types of parables, which we can distinguish between how they either begin or how they end. 
there are many of them that end with the line, go and do likewise. These are parables about how we are supposed to live our lives. And in contrast, there are the parables like the one we're looking at today that are the kingdom parables that begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like such and such. Now, while both of these types of parables are meant to teach us about what it means to be called to follow Jesus, it's in the kingdom parables that we can most clearly see aspects of the nature of God's presence and how the world should be and how God desires that it will be. So as we seek to look today, we're looking at one of those kingdom parables. We're looking to know just what it means for us to be forgiven, but even more how God desires that we would forgive others. So a king has called in all of those who are indebted to him in order to settle their accounts. And the first man appears before the king who owes him 10,000 talents or 10,000 bags of gold, which would have been the pay for an unskilled laborer for 200,000 years, or we can call it roughly three and a half billion dollars in today's currency. The king's response is swift and firm that not only will this debtor be sold into slavery to help cover the debt, but so will his family, and all that he has will be sold to help pay it off. But the debtor falls to his knees, begging for more time to pay back what he owes, which we all can tell was a debt that was beyond repayment. Yet the king took pity on him and simply canceled the debt. It seems like a simple story of forgiveness and one that most of us can all immediately relate to where God is the king and each and every one of us is that debtor. All the good that we could possibly do cannot cover over the weight of our sin, the weight of our debt to our Lord. And for most of us, we are not even aware of just how much sin exists within our lives. And as I hear this story, there's this large part of me that is still like that debtor who doesn't want to ask God to simply wipe the slate clean between us, but rather I want to ask for more time to try and earn God's forgiveness, not just have it taken away from me, which is the same part of me that can also all too easily understand that I could easily rack up a debt, and in many ways I have racked up a debt of sin is even greater than 10,000 talents. Now, it would be simple if this were all that there was to the story. We would see the overwhelming grace of a king who we can easily understand to be God, yet Jesus had more to tell. He had that twist that we've talked about. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison till he could pay the debt. Our recently forgiven debtor walks from the throne room of his king and sees another man who owes him 100 denarii, which we can easily say was the equivalent of about $12,000. He does not extend grace, but rather he takes him, chokes him, and demands that he pay back what he is owed. And what feels as though it's a parallel to the beginning of this parable, the one who is indebted asks for more time. Yet where the king had pardoned the debts of the man who had no hope of ever repaying what he owed, this man now has his own debtor 
thrown into prison until he can pay back all that he owes. Those words get me like a punch to the stomach. I can feel them in my life. And I know despite the fact that God has forgiven me and continues to forgive me every day, every hour, and sometimes every minute of the day of all of the sin that is in my life, I will hold on to the insignificant things that people have done to me. Jesus calls our attention to the way that we do this when during the Sermon on the Mount, he shared these words. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time the plank is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Part of the issue of forgiving others comes in the simple fact that all too many of us have become blind to the sin in our lives. While we see it very clearly in the lives of people around us. I've noticed that the easiest sign for me that there's some aspect of sin in my life that I need to address is when there's something that someone else around me is doing that seems to be driving me crazy. Maybe it's when a coworker seems to be more sarcastic than normal. Now, I've been told by many people who I hold in very high opinion that my love language is sarcasm. But apparently, it's actually, in fact, just a rather unhealthy coping mechanism for stress in my life. Or when I see that idiot driver who is swerving in and out of multiple lanes of traffic, while I'm simply doing the safe thing of playing my favorite driving game, of ensuring that I do, in fact, beat what Google Maps tells me is my estimated time of arrival. My faults, my sins, my wronging of someone else, all are worthy of forgiveness. Yet to me, so often, what someone else has done is not. In his book, Yes, Lord, I Have Sinned, but I Have Several Excellent Excuses, James Moore wrote, Nothing is kept under wraps anymore. We will admit to almost anything. Our problem is not that we hesitate to admit anything. Our problem is that we are learning how to justify everything. We have excellent excuses for anything we want to do. My excuses make my sin, make my debt, something that God should want to pardon or should make me want to forgive, should make you want to forgive me when I have wronged you. But I don't know your excuses. And even if I did know them, by no stretch of the imagination would your excuses be the correct ones that would make me want to offer you the same forgiveness to which I feel entitled. Yet God does not want to hear our excuses any more than we want to hear those given by our neighbors. Nearly every Sunday morning during our time of prayer, we pray these words together. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, I grew up in the Methodist church where we would pray instead, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And whenever I'm leading a service that is not purely a Presbyterian service, I always have to pause for a moment to give the trespassers time to catch up. And I've often remarked that 
Never has a trespass collector sent someone a letter saying that they've trespassed when all too many people know what it's like to receive that letter from a debt collector. Now those words from the Lord's Prayer are not simply a suggestion, nor are they a quid pro quo of Jesus encouraging us to forgive since we have been forgiven. Rather, they are a heartfelt prayer that our Creator will extend grace to us for all that we have done, even as we ask God to help us to offer forgiveness to others. Now, forgiving someone else is not an easy thing to do. It took me most of the first 19 years of my life to truly grasp that. It was my freshman year of college, and I was randomly placed with a roommate from a fairly small town in northern North Carolina. And at first, it seemed like it was a decent fit. We were both pre-med, but then again, 90% of our university seemed to start off as pre-med. We were both dating our high school girlfriends who happened to still be a year behind us. We were both legacies of our university. But the differences soon started to become apparent. I didn't really get into the party scene a whole lot, where he wanted to live things out to the utmost, sometimes a little too far to the utmost. And by the beginning of our second semester, we'd realized that this living situation was not one that would be sustainable. So we started working through a process that was probably more complicated than it should have been to switch rooms so that I could leave behind the room I started in and switch off with someone else down the hall. Now, a few days prior to the one on which I was supposed to move, I woke up early to call my girlfriend, who happens to be my now wife, Lauren, as she was on her way to school. I was in the hallway outside of our room on a cordless phone, trying to talk quietly enough so as not to disturb anyone on the hall, while loud enough to be heard by Lauren on the other end. When I heard something smash against the wall from within our room, my phone went dead. I heard our door lock. I started knocking on the door, and the knocking soon turned to banging on the door. And after about five minutes of this incessant banging, my roommate threw open the door. The next few moments were ones of those flashbulb memories where I see a piece here and a piece there of seeing my roommate standing just inside the room with a screwdriver in his hand before feeling a sharp pain in my chest and looking down to see that screwdriver in my chest and to see blood leaking down my torso. Then remember running out the door, running out the dorm and running across campus to the student health center. That's about all I remember. A few months later, my roommate and I were sitting before the dean of students in a, what could only be described as a courtroom setup with some of the law school students serving as our attorneys, while the dean of students was trying to determine who needed to be punished for this incident. We were both standing trial because as I fled out of our room and I slammed the door shut behind me, that attempted slam of a door bounced back and struck my roommate in the head. Now, the dean listened to our attorneys give their view. He listened to what my roommate had to say, what I had to say, and then he sent us both down into separate rooms down the hall. A short while later, 
I was escorted back into the courtroom where the dean told me that he had found my former roommate guilty, but he wanted my input into what his punishment should be. He laid out that the punishments could basically stretch from expulsion to social probation with a whole gamut of other levels in between. I asked the dean to give him the least stringent punishment. But I also asked for a chance to speak to my roommate before he received this sentence. A short while later, I looked across the room at my former roommate. I said some of the hardest words I'd ever had to speak. I forgive you. Those were not words I wanted to say. They were ones that I had wrestled with for months. And they were ones about which I had prayed for months. I had prayed that I would have the desire to forgive my former roommate. I had prayed that I would be able to forgive him. I had prayed that I would actually have the courage to be able to say those words that morning. But even more though, I had to pray for him. I knew that this person who had wronged me had not done so out of spite for me. He had his own issues he was trying to work through. He had his own set of excuses for his actions that were on his heart and in his mind. And as much as I didn't want to forgive him for stabbing me, I also knew that God desired that I would forgive him. And at least once a month since that day more than 20 years ago, I still have to pray that I will continue to forgive him. See, forgiveness isn't just a once and done moment in our lives. It's a process. It's a process that can take us the entirety of our lives to not only work through, but to sometimes understand in fullness. And I don't like that fact. I like my life to be a series of clear set, clear set things occurring with a clear beginning, middle, and end. And once I've reached the end point, I like to put it up, put it in a file, and let that file sit in my brain without ever having to be touched again. But instead, where forgiveness is the issue, I'll occasionally feel this tugging on my heart that seems to say, you're having thoughts about that situation that you thought you'd resolved, and you need to re-examine that file that you'd put away, and you need to start working on the forgiveness of that person again, which is part of what Jesus wanted to get across with this particular parable. Now, most of his parables were not stories that were told in isolation. Rather, they were told to answer a question. The parable of the Good Samaritan sought to answer the question, who is my neighbor? The parable of the persistent widow sought to answer the question, when should I cease praying over a particular issue? And this parable sought to answer another question. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me, up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Peter's question is one that many of us have needed to ask. How often should we forgive someone who has wronged us? Is there a point at which we need to start holding a grudge? Is there a point at which it's okay to not give it up? It's also a question had a traditional answer within the canon of rabbinic wisdom. Someone must forgive his brother or sister three times. Rabbi Yossi ben Yehuda stated, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, 
they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive. Peter seemed to have understood that Jesus wanted his disciples to take their understanding of love, their understanding of grace, beyond what the traditional wisdom of the time stated. So he offered to not only double the number of times that he was supposed to forgive, but to even add one more and to offer to forgive seven times. Jesus, though, did not see that as enough. Rather, our Lord wants us to offer to forgive 77 times, which in that time frame and in Jesus' understanding of numbers and numerology meant that we should never stop offering forgiveness. Oftentimes, when we are offering forgiveness for a single time, when someone we know, someone we care for, has sinned against us, we must forgive 77 times before we're even able to say the words. And sometimes over the course of the rest of our lives, we must offer it another 77 times to continue to hold that forgiveness in our hearts. This process is not one that we do simply because we want to, but it's what God has called us to do. See, this parable, this Jesus story, still has one more final twist. It has one, six more verses in it. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured till he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now those last verses were ones that I had been truly tempted to not actually look at with you this morning. I don't like them. I don't like the moments in the Bible where we see the flip side of grace, punishment and condemnation. But oftentimes we can forget that when God gives us a command, it is just that. It is a command. It is not a suggestion. It's not an idea of how we might want to live if we were able to do so, if we can put aside all of the things that are on our hearts and on our minds and the excuses that we have put forward. But this is a command that we are to forgive those who have sinned against us. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh Lord, have mercy on me. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Hallelujah. You'll set me free. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh Lord, have mercy on me. I'm your friend. Jesus, what you've done. On Golgotha's hill 
stand still See my sin To stand it high I see Hallelujah Last weekend, a friend of mine was the victim of a senseless crime that resulted in him spending a few days in the hospital. And when we first learned of this crime that occurred against him, we weren't sure if he was going to live. We weren't sure if he was going to have permanent damage. Something that shouldn't have happened. My friend was not the only victim. I want to pray for the perpetrator. But right now, I'm still early in that process of forgiving him 77 times. I'm still working through that 77 times it might take me to want to forgive him. But I want this man to know the same grace that God has offered to me. For even though as far as I know, my sins have never landed someone in the hospital, I am as much a sinner as any other person. And I am as much in need of the forgiving grace of God and of the forgiving grace of those whom I have wronged as this man is. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a forgiving God. We thank you that you do not hold our sins against us. We thank you also that you work in our hearts, that you work in our minds to help us to want to forgive those who have wronged us. Grant our hearts new wisdom today. Grant our minds the ability to see as you see, that we might grow with you and grow with one another as we seek to extend your hand of grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, sing it with me. Hallelujah. Our sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 Lord we thank you, Lord we thank you, Lord we thank you, hallelujah. Sinners, yet saved by grace. Sinners, yet saved by grace.